Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you that we are here. Lord, I know that there are others in this room that are thankful that they are here, and they're ready, and they're able to hear your word, and I just pray, God, that that's exactly what would happen today. Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom as I speak, that the words that I speak would be uh, your words, Lord, not just my own ideas or thoughts. I pray this in your name. Amen. Have you ever heard the word convert before? Figured probably you had. Uh, a convert, and I looked up this definition, uh, cause to change in form, character, or function. And obviously, when we think about it in church, we think about a person who is a convert is a person who has been persuaded to change their religious faith or other beliefs. That's what we think of. We think of convert. Talk about conversions. Um, it's a word that uh, we don't necessarily use that often, but I, I think that you're all familiar with it. Um, and we've probably heard some amazing stories. Have you ever heard any amazing convert stories? Somebody who was a drug dealer or a, um, a gang member, or I, I can remember one in particular where this guy, he was uh, a, a part of the mafia, and uh, God saved him out of that, and just the, the change of life, the drastic change of life. And those stories are fun to listen to, aren't they? I just, I love hearing those. Um, well, we're going to talk about one today. Possibly one of the most famous ones of all uh, is the conversion, and this is why I'm talking about this, the conversion of a man named Saul. And I think that you all know who I'm talking about. Eventually he's called what? Paul. Saul. What do we know about Saul? What had Saul been doing? We've heard about him already, haven't we? Just go ahead. What's he been doing? Persecuting the church, killing Christians. Specifically, the first mention of him is when this man, Stephen, and uh, when I just think of Stephen, I just think he was probably the kind of guy that other people, when they talked about him beforehand, they just said, he's just such a good guy. Just, man, I love that Stephen. Stephen has the audacity to stand up and to preach the gospel and to face off against some important people. And we know, because we studied this not that long ago, that they got upset I mean, really upset. Picked up stones, threw them at Stephen until he was dead. And off to the side, approving of this, was a young guy named Saul. That's Saul. So we're going to pick up on Acts chapter 9, and it starts off by saying this, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. A couple of interesting things before I continue on. Saul is still up to the same thing he's been doing. And he gets some letters, some, something official, certificates, so to speak, letters that he can take with him to other synagogues to say, I've got permission and authority to either haul to prison or I think to kill people who are part of. And I think this is really interesting. It doesn't say Christians yet. In fact, we're going to talk about that eventually. It says people who are part of the way. Did anybody else notice that as I was reading that? That's kind of a cool name for Christianity, isn't it? I think it might find its roots in uh, Jesus, who when he said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And so the, the nickname, the one of the first nicknames for Christianity is the way. People who are part of the way. I like that. That's what we are, isn't it? People who are part of the way. The way. Well, this is Saul. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is uh, the Mediterranean Sea, this right here. Um, Tarsus, he's called Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is up here in modern-day Turkey is all right here. So at some point in Saul's life, he had made it from Tarsus down to Jerusalem. That's when we first hear about him. So he's Saul of Tarsus, that's where he's from. But uh, he's now, as he's persecuted the church here, he's decided to go up to this city of Damascus. Now, this little dot right here, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent most of his ministry time. So we're talking about up further, even past this, to Damascus. So Christianity, interesting, has spread. And we're going to talk about that again in a minute as well. We talked about it spreading to uh, Samaria, which would have been right around here. But there's been reports, obviously. And so I think that maybe Saul's trying to get, a, get ahead of this. And if he can nip this in the bud. So he, he heads off. Can I go as far as Damascus to, to stop this thing? And so this is Saul. He's on his way. And on his way, there's this light from heaven. And it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think Saul at this point was probably thinking Jesus was dead. So to have Jesus show up in this manner, in this fashion, and for Saul, knowing so much of the Old Testament, knowing that when God shows up, this is quite often how God shows up, as a blinding light. He says, I'm, he didn't know Saul, I'm Jesus, and you're persecuting me. He says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. So there's others in this, this party that are going along. They stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his, his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he's, he's, he can't see anything at all. He's been blinded by this experience. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. We find out in later passages, uh, because uh, this, this story uh, is one of the most talked about in the New Testament stories of conversion. Saul actually talks about this, or Paul right, talks about this in Acts chapter 22. He reiterates this story again. And then in Acts 26, he talks about it again. And so you can compare. And there's other details that are uh, uh, illuminated through these other stories. We find out in one of the later passages is that these others did not understand what was being said. So right here it says, uh, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Later on it talks about the fact that they didn't understand the words that were even being said. So they hear like a voice. And even though they didn't see anyone, we find out in one of the later passages they saw the light. So they see this light. They recognize this light, but they don't see who is talking uh, or the person. And Saul here, proud, arrogant Saul, is now being led by the hand. That's important, I think. And he's led by the hand, and for three days he was without sight. I mean, he is 
helpless. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at uh, at Damascus named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than we're going to hear about later. But I'm also thinking when I read that, I thought, disciple, so so he's right. Christianity has made it this far. Because here's a disciple named Ananias in Damascus. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Which, by the way, every, every time when you go through scriptures, every time God says something to somebody, I found out, I think this is the right thing, way to respond. I'm here. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. So there's a street, and the name of the street is the Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias, I don't know anything about how he became a Christian. I'm wondering if possibly he was there at Pentecost, one of the several thousand people who were from all over the place that maybe, maybe he heard at that point. Maybe the, the gospel has actually spread this far. It's made it past Samaria, and so the disciples are going out spreading the gospel. We don't know. But Ananias is here, and he's a disciple. Ananias is told to go see Saul of Tarsus. I don't know about you, but would you have some little red flashing lights going off? You know, here I am, Lord, but sure this is what you want me to do. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. As if God didn't know that. Have you ever done that? Have you tried to inform God? God, I know you're calling me to do that, but did you know that? <laughs> yeah, God knows this. Just making sure, Lord. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must. Suffer for the sake of my name. There's some fascinating theology happening in that verse. I'm going to come back to some of this in a minute. But interesting, a chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name. This is what he's going to do. And I want to show him how much he must do what? Suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened like all good Baptists. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. I went through that kind of quick. I want to take a a few minutes here of application to really think about what does this mean. It's just an amazing story in and of itself. Just an amazing story. But I think that there's something about this particular conversion that we can learn from that speaks to all of our conversions. There are aspects of this conversion that speak to all of our conversions. So I actually have eight things that I want to give you, eight points here, 
from this story that play out into all of our lives. The first one, I believe, is very, very important for our modern society. Sincerity alone does not save. We live in a world where what you believe isn't as important as how much you believe it. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been watching a TV show and they, somebody said, you just got to have faith. And what they're talking about is just really believe something really strong. And that's what counts. But I'm here to tell you that there are a lot of people who are very sincere, but they are very sincerely wrong. I'm here to tell you that Muslims are sincerely wrong. I'm here to tell you that Jehovah's Witnesses, as sincere as they might be and as dedicated as they might be, are sincerely wrong. Mormons, their dedication to their belief system, are sincerely wrong. Buddhists, atheists, they might believe it wholeheartedly, but they are sincerely wrong. We're talking about the way. The way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. I've heard a lot of people say that... uh, all the religions of the world are basically the same. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I want to tell you that they're essentially and basically different. A lot of people say, well, we're basically the same. There's a lot of this and this, and they start listing off to all these little things. Be nice, loving your neighbor. There's a, there's a lot of religions that hold to those things. But I'm going to tell you right now, the key element of Christianity is not love your neighbor. There's something more key than that. It's that it, it's Jesus is the way. And I'm going to tell you right now, all religions, they disagree on that one aspect. A lot of people say, well, what's the difference between this and this? I'm telling you right now, Mormons, they don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe Jesus was God in the flesh. And that he died on the cross for your sins. They don't believe that. To even say that Jesus is divine is offensive to someone who is a Muslim. For a Buddhist, Jesus, they believed he was a person. He wasn't God. He didn't rise from the dead. Essentially and basically different. Sincerity does not save. Saul, in Galatians, talks about this salvation experience. In Galatians chapter 1 is one of the places where he himself is writing about these things. And he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. He's talking about Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I think, think of zeal as righteous energy. There's a lot of people who are very zealous for the things they believe in. Saul was very zealous, but when God intercepted him, Jesus said, you can be as zealous as you want, but you're on the wrong team, my friend. In one of the later stories, there's a Greek proverb that Saul or Paul uses when he's discussing the story in Acts 22, or I'm sorry, Acts 26. He says, he adds this extra little phrase in that Jesus said to him where he says, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? 
Imagine a, a metal ball with spikes all over it. I, I used to like to play soccer. I was never very good at it, but I mean, I could kick the ball pretty good. Imagine, you ever seen one of those, like the, the stick and the chain and the metal spikes on the end? Imagine one of those sitting there and saying, let's play some soccer. You come kick that thing, the only person you're going to hurt is who? You. That's what that phrase meant. It was actually a Greek proverb that was used. Why would you do? You're only hurting yourself, Saul. Number two, all Christian conversions are by God's amazing grace. Every single one of you, if you're sitting here today and you say, and I'm, I've been converted from whatever other belief system I had before this to true Christianity, which means you're sitting here today and you're saying, I don't think that I get saved. I don't, my, my faith is not that I think if I'm good enough, right, then God will accept me. If I, if I can keep all the right commandments and God will accept it, I, I've given up on all those things. I believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on the cross for my sins. My only hope is not my righteousness, but all on him. It's not a team effort. It's all Jesus. I'm banking everything on that. Or like I said on, on Easter Sunday, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, that, that's what I believe, I'm, I'm, I'm putting everything in there. You as a Christian convert, you came to that understanding, that decision, not because you were just so smart and you were smarter than the other people around you. In fact, I would say that in this church, most of you would go, you know what, I know I'm not smarter than most people around me. I, I love that most people, when, when they've become Christians, they'll sit there and go, man, if I was left to myself, I never would have done this. And they know, they recognize God's amazing grace I can remember when I was young hearing this example of salvation, uh, of, of uh, this boat. So imagine here's a boat, and you've probably heard me say this before. Somebody's out in the, the ocean, and they're drowning, and they're like, save me! And they're talking about this is a picture of salvation. And, and then the guy up on the boat, uh, they kind of illustrate as Jesus, and he throws them the life preserver. That's a horrible illustration. Want a good illustration? I, I, I want to actually read. I don't have a slide for this, but uh, uh, when we studied Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead, so you were spiritually dead. You were born spiritually dead. So let's adjust the illustration. And some of you know where I'm going with this because you've heard me give this before. Imagine instead salvation looking this way. There's a boat. Out in the water is a dead body. Floating. Bloated. Sharks have been nibbling on it. If you throw a life preserver out to it, the most that you accomplish is knocking off a limb. You want a better illustration of salvation? Jesus once, he had a friend named Lazarus who had died. Lazarus had been in the tomb. Jesus came to that tomb after four days and said, Lazarus, come out. Most of you know that. Most of you know that. You recognize that in your own life. You were, 
hell-bent, I think is a, a good way of putting it, on doing what you were going to do. And at some point, Jesus came to me and said, wake up. Come alive. Precisely what it says in Ephesians 2, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul, in Galatians, that passage I mentioned earlier, Galatians chapter 1, the verse right before what I shared a moment ago, uh, verse 12 says, For I did not receive it from any man, talking about the gospel, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. We know what he's talking about when we read this verse, don't we? Because we just read what happened in Acts. Skip over to verse 15 in Galatians chapter 1, and it says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me. It's interesting when we think about grace. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. If if God saves people because there's something within them that they had, then who gets the the glory? If God just lays salvation out, and and whoever's smart enough to figure it out, then when we get to heaven, who's going to boast? Us. The Bible teaches a very, very different story that salvation is very much like what happened to Saul. We were on our road. We were on our path to Damascus. And Christ stepped in and said, Why are you going that way? You're just going to hurt yourself. Wake up. Number three. All Christian conversions involve a life changing encounter with Jesus Christ. This extends from that last one. A life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Part of this is receiving a new purpose. We've seen this illustrated in, in Paul's life. He's been given a task. God tells Ananias that Saul will be a chosen instrument. Paul, when he teaches all through the New Testament, all these letters that he writes, very much doesn't think that it's just him. He talks about himself but he's all, he always points back to all of the people reading the letters. I believe today that if you have encountered Jesus Christ, that God has a task for you. You are a chosen instrument as well. God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. He's got something for you to do. But I just say, maybe some of us need to get on task. What is it that God has called you to do? We're going to see what Saul does next, because he, right after this, Saul doesn't sit around and do nothing. We're going to see Saul very quickly, as his name becomes Paul, go out and start telling others. He doesn't wait. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Number four, all Christian conversions involve a surrender to Jesus Christ. I think there's, it's very much illustrated in God's humbling, and Jesus' humbling of Saul. I mean, Saul went from standing... Right, I always picture him standing up off to the side as Stephen is being stoned to death. I always picture him standing like this. I don't know about you, when you pictured him standing and people laying coats at his feet, did you picture his arms crossed? I just pictured his arms crossed, I don't know why. I picture him standing up there, he's approving what's going on. Now we see Saul, as he's been intercepted by Jesus Christ, 
as he makes the rest of his way to Damascus. Now, when he set off to Damascus, and he's got letters, he's got papers in his hand, he's ready to do some serious damage on the church. But now, how do we see him making his final leg of this journey? What did it say? Do you might remember that? Being led by what? By the hand. Talk about being brought low. The rest of his journey, there's somebody holding his hand and taking him the rest of the way to Damascus. I think there's there's something very true in all of us. And maybe some of you even know it. Maybe you're very full of yourself. Sometimes this happens even in progressive steps in our salvations. I can think of times after I became a Christian where I was still thinking I was pretty darn good. And I'd mess up big. Eventually very much feel like Saul being led by the hand. Then he ends up there and... For three days, just sitting in a room waiting. I, I think that's interesting that God didn't immediately send somebody there to help him. Reminds me of a father saying, I think you need to sit and think about what you've done for a little bit, Saul. You think he was doing some serious thinking for those three days? Have you ever sat and waited for anything for three days? Doesn't it feel like an eternity? That's exactly what Saul had to do. God made him wait. You sit and you wait. He lets him know he's going to send somebody. He does. But he had to sit and wait. And I think that all Christian conversions, true conversions to Christianity, involve a surrender to Jesus Christ. A humbling. A surrender. Number five. All Christian conversions are really very much about receiving sight. So in my illustrations, I, I love the illustration of Lazarus. I think that's a wonderful illustration of what salvation looks like. Right a step below that, I think all of the illustrations in Scripture of a blind person being able to see. In fact, I think we have some of those in our songs today, didn't we? In fact, one of our favorite songs, Amazing Grace, doesn't it say something about that in there? Once I was blind, but now I see. There's something very true about coming to this place of salvation as suddenly having our eyes opened to the truth. I'm a sinner. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be able to live righteously enough. Jesus came. He was real. He died on the cross for me. My sins have been taken care of. All of God's wrath was taken care of at the cross. What an amazing thing that is. And, and, and people who come to true Christian conversion, you know what they do? They get to that point, and God had, draws them in, and it's like scales, just like Saul, like scales falling off the eyes, and suddenly you're looking at it going, this is too good to be true. You just fall in His grace. In 2 Corinthians... For Saul, this is very real, but in 2 Corinthians, he writes about this. He's talking about all of us. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So he's talking about unbelievers. He said, in their case, talking about unbelievers, God has blinded, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of us have this problem. We're blinded. What are we blinded from? From seeing the light of the gospel, the good news, of the glory of Christ. I love that the way that Paul says this here. I, I can't help but wonder if he was reminiscing about his conversion when he talks about this. Reminiscing about uh, Old Testament writings about God as a light as he wrote this. People are blinded to seeing because, see, we see it. We go, God is amazing. Have you ever talked to somebody about how amazing God is? And they're sitting there going, yeah. And you're looking at them going, they haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. And you're trying to describe it in different ways, but no matter what you do, they're just, just, no, they're just not seeing it. They're like, yeah, God's good. And you're going, I don't think you see how good He is, because if you did, you would fall on this. You would jump on this. You don't see. Paul continues in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. What's he talking about when he says that? Isn't he going all the way back to the beginning? The beginning? And what does God do? Let there be light. The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we glory at how great God is when we recognize who Jesus is, is what this is talking about. A lot of people say, yeah, I think there's a God. James says, even demons believe in God and tremble. Salvation is like this, like a light coming on, suddenly realizing God's great glory isn't just in what I see in nature, isn't just in what I see in His creation, but specifically in the person of Jesus, that He made a way of salvation that glorifies Him and I'm completely dependent on. Number six, all Christian conversions involve receiving of the Holy Spirit. This is something we've actually talked about before since we've been in Acts. So I just want to mention this. This is exactly what happens with Paul. Ananias, one of the first things he says, he says, I've come to give you sight and that you might receive the Holy Spirit. Number seven, all Christians' conversions involve receiving a new family. If you scroll back to verse 17, Saul, who's been blinded, and he's sitting and waiting for this guy named Ananias. God tells him there's this Ananias is going to come. What's the first word? And I'll even help you. If you have your Bibles out, you can go back and look. Verse 17, what's the first word that he hears from the first disciple that he meets? Brother. I want to tell you, I love that. Because I can only imagine that Saul may have been thinking about all the things that he's done to God's church and thinking nobody is going to want me. The first person that comes to see him, the first word that comes out of his mouth is what? Brother Saul. Brother. Family. Would that have been encouraging? 
I think so. You have this person and you can't see it. In my head, I like to imagine these scenarios. I picture Paul in this room and it's dark, but he doesn't even know it because he's blind, right? So he's sitting there in this room and Ananias walks in and, and maybe he sees him sitting there for a second and, and, and Paul's kind of thinking, I think I heard somebody walk in the room and, and, but nothing's been said yet. And then Ananias walks over to him and, and Ananias maybe toying around with what to say. By the Spirit of God, he just knows the right word to say first. Brother. Brother Saul. God sent me to you. Brother Saul. This is important for all of us. This idea of receiving uh, a new... Oh, I didn't click. I'm sorry. Receiving a new family. Jesus talks about aspects of Christianity. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, Do not think... This is Jesus speaking... Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Interesting thing. We usually sing peace on earth, goodwill toward men at Christmas time, Matt. In some sense, yes. In other senses, no. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and some of you are thinking, well, daughter, I'm already against my mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The sword is, you think of it as a splitting. I think two things when I think about this idea of a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ. I think for me, if I'm going to be honest, I don't have to deal with this as much as many of you have. I have the great, great blessing of many of my family members, many of my immediate family members, being not only Christians, but in my own church. Uh, I look at both sides of my family and, and Christian heritage, both sides. Uh, all my, my wife's brothers and sisters are all saved and following Jesus. My two sisters saved following Jesus. My parents, her parents. That's a great blessing. I also know that many of you don't have that. I'm aware of that. I know that in my own family, uh, I think of my mother-in-law, I think of my mother, I think of my dad, I think of my uh, uh, father-in-law. There's many of them that as they became Christians, there was they felt that sword, that division enter in. You know, it's, it's tough because you as a Christian, all, you, all you're thinking about is how much you love these family members and how much you want them to be part of this family. You love them. You love those people. And you want them to see the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the reality is, and Jesus warns us, warns us of this, many, many Christians are going to face times where their earthly family feels like a sword dropped right down through the middle of it. And it's bittersweet, isn't it? You glory, you're thankful that God has saved you. But your heart might be broken because you look at these family members and, and maybe some of them even it feels like they hate you now because of, you're sitting here going, I'm not, and you get all kinds of false accusations. Oh, you think you're better than me now? Oh, just going to church all the time, you think you're just so good? You're thinking, 
No. I just want you to know Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that's good. You pray for them and you weep for them. So I think that in addition to that, I have to say many of us don't embrace this side of it as much as we ought to. There is that heartache of having that sword of division fall down in our families and and knowing that these people that you've grown up with and you've loved, there's a separation. But God has provided brothers and sisters. I think we ought to embrace that a little more than we we do. All throughout the New Testament, every single time, Paul says, brothers. Uh, Jesus at one point um, even talks about, there's this story of him being in this building and he's doing some teaching and his, his mom shows up, and this is before his before the end, right? And his mother shows up and she's outside and his brothers and sisters are out there and they're, they're wanting to talk to him. And some, some people make their way inside and they go, Jesus, your mom's outside. And Jesus doesn't drop everything and go. What does Jesus do? He says, Who, who's my mom? Who's my brothers and sisters? He says, it's those who keep God's word, who, who have fallen this way, who keep my word is what he says. There ought to be, in, to some degree, an embracing of our, what you might say for us, our church family. Jesus even goes on to say in the passage I have here, verse 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Those are tough words. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I think we ought to embrace, but realize it's a good embrace. And who are you to know that as you embrace God's new adopted in family that you become a part of, who's to say that God is not going to save these others? Bring that to Him. All of us, though, we get a new family. Number eight. You can't hear the story of Saul and his conversion without understanding this truth right here. God can save the worst of sinners. Paul later calls himself the chief among sinners. And he holds that title almost like a flag. I'm Paul, the chief among sinners. Can you understand why? I know in one sense we're all sinners, and I know that usually there's been many... I, Almost every Christian I know that's been a Christian for a while, we, we've probably used that phrase ourselves. I feel like I'm the chief among sinners. I think we all get that. But I believe that God saved Saul and had allowed him beforehand to go the path that he was on to demonstrate his great grace. And I think that Saul, or eventually Paul, I keep mixing this. Eventually I'm just going to call him Paul. I'm writing the, the, the borderline here. Paul wants us to know who he was because he doesn't want anybody to go, God can't save me. Paul, very often when he comes back to this story, one of his purposes is to say, if God can save me, he can save anybody. We can all look at this and say, if God can save Saul, then he could save me. If God could save Saul, I mean, think about what Saul was doing. I... On my worst day, I'm, 
you know, I still think of myself as the chief among sinners. I think of myself as a horrible sinner. But on my worst day, I've never stood and watched a Christian being stoned to death and thought, good job. That's what Saul did. And Saul demonstrates God's grace and his conversion. And later on, as he's Paul, and he talks about this, he wants you to know, it doesn't matter where you've been. There's not a person on the planet. I, I think Paul would have wanted us to say these sorts of things. There's not a person on the planet that could hold up any kind of banner to say, I did as bad as this. Saul, Paul wants you to know you can be saved. And God can save you. God can save the worst of sinners. God can save you. That also means God can save them. Because whether we like to admit it or not, there's many of us in this room, even though we think of ourselves as the chief among sinners, every once in a while it creeps in. We see somebody else, and we think, in the back of our minds, now they're really bad. They're really evil. God can save them too. You ought not to limit yourself to who you talk to based on what they've done, where they've been, or how they've acted, or even their attitude. Saul was very arrogant in his approach to Christianity and his fight against it. God can save even them. And you can fill in the blank with that them with anybody you could possibly think of. Have you ever felt as you considered somebody that you cared about and you're praying for them to get saved, have you ever let that thought creep in and think, I just don't see how this could ever happen? This ought to be blown out of the water. God could save Saul. He could save anybody. I want to close today with a quote. One of the commentaries I read ended this particular part of the commentary with this paragraph. And I had to share it with you because it just summarizes everything that I wanted to say into one neat package. Once again, it's Tony Merida. And he ends by saying this. He says, Have you surrendered to Christ in repentance and faith, receiving his summons to service? If so, then allow the grace of God to encourage you as you live on mission. God saves sinners. And he wants to reach others through you. Rejoice. If you haven't surrendered to him, then do so now. You can't use the excuse that you're too bad or even count on all of your religious efforts to buy your salvation. Look at Saul. You're just the right candidate for grace. All of you in this room, I want to say that too. If you're here today and you've said, I've surrendered to him. I've got my Damascus Road experience where I was on my own path and God just stepped in and said, open your eyes. Then be encouraged. God has saved you. And God wants to save others as well. So get on task. Be on mission. Live this life knowing that God might be using you to open the eyes of someone else. If you're here today and you've struggled with that point, and you're sitting here going, love all this stuff. But maybe you've been held back by thinking, I'm just too bad. I've messed up too many times. I've failed too many times. Then I want to encourage you as well to say, if God can save Saul, he can save you. He can save you.
God's grace is amazing, isn't it? It's displayed so well in the life and the conversion of Saul, how amazing God's grace is, that he decided that his chosen instrument that he was going to use to take the gospel to the the Gentile world was going to be Saul, who stood over the martyrdom of Stephen. That's just how amazing God's grace is. In fact, I think that God decided in advance. In fact, Paul said, before I was even born, I'm going to use Saul to demonstrate. I'm going to allow Saul to go his own way to the extent of his own sinful mind so that when I save him, he will be a trophy, a testament to my amazing grace. And here we are 2,000 years later reading about this amazing testament to God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you for Saul's story. God, I thank you for having it recorded for us to read. I thank you that Luke wrote these things down. I'm, I'm grateful, God, that you have allowed us to hear this story and to learn from it. God, I pray that you'd help us as a people, as a church, be on mission and on task, Lord, spreading the gospel. Lord, we don't know who you've got in mind to save. God, I pray that you'd help us to be instruments, chosen instruments in your hands. Lord, I pray that you bless us through this week as we think back to this story, recognizing how grace, grace-filled grace you are in our own salvations. Lord, help, help that to encourage us Lord, as we continue to fail and stumble that our salvation is not depending on us anyway. You are a God who saves sinners. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.